Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Mervyn King, formerly of the Bank of England, now at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's the Alan Greenspan Professor of Economics there and the author of The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy. He and I last spoke upon the publication of that book, and I recommend it heartily. Great to have you with us here on the program this morning. Good morning. Very nice to be with you. Let me start by asking you about the, the meeting upon which we're focusing today. That's the FOMC meeting in Washington. There's a lot of speculation. We're going to learn a bit more, perhaps with regard to timing for uh, this process of normalization or the balance sheet uh, unwind. Pick your, pick your term for it. Uh, what do you think they should be considering as they, uh, as they determine the, the timetable uh, for that? So I think they'll be looking at the inflation outlook primarily. They're also concerned about the speed of recovery in the United States. But we have all been surprised by how uh, quiescent inflation and particularly wage inflation has been. And I think what they'll focus on primarily are any signals that they can detect that wage inflation is picking up. I, I wonder about um, the, the way they've telegraphed this thus far. Uh, from economists I've spoken with, there is a seemingly a lot of agreement that um, they've done this well. Uh, in terms of central bank communication, this is, this is maybe a high mark. Uh, the way they've outlined this, the broad strokes they've given... Uh, the markets ahead of this has been done well. Do you agree? Do you, do you think we have a good sense of, of how this is going to play out? Well, I think that's true, but I think uh, it's not really very important whether or not markets understand what will happen at the next meeting. What's much more important is that markets have a clear view as to how the Fed or other central banks are going to react to economic data as they come in, whatever they are. None of us can foresee the future, and so we shouldn't be in the business of pretending to forecast where interest rates will be in the future. What we need to be able to do is to be confident of how the central bank will respond to whatever those data turn out to be. If, if high frequency is the watchword or the, the watch phrase now when it comes to, to the markets, how equipped uh, is the Fed or for any matter any number of central banks to, to deal with the way that markets uh, have evolved? You've thought a lot about the, uh, the evolution of central banking and where, where things might be headed. Uh, are central banks equipped to deal with what we're seeing as, as faster markets, for lack of a better phrase? Yes, I think they are. I think they're very much in tune with what is happening. The risk in all this is that it becomes circular. That is, that central banks try and give hints and suggestions as to where they're going. Markets respond to that. In turn, central banks respond to what markets are doing. What's much more important is that central banks look further ahead and think about the underlying determinants of what is going to influence inflation. And that requires a closer look at various components of the money supply and credit and the way that's impacting on underlying inflationary forces. Lord Mervyn King with us uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Just want to paint the picture here. I've, I've walked across town, as one does here during UN General Assembly Week, from uh, Bloomberg headquarters to the, uh, the Plaza Hotel where this conference is taking place. Tom Keane going to join me in short order. Of course, he just got off uh, air on television. He's with uh, Lord King uh, in our uh, Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, good morning, David. I'll join David at the Plaza Hotel with some important guests and conversations that we hope will uh, be more than thought leaders. These are not thought leaders. These are world leaders and acclaimed and expert leaders such as Lord uh, King. Lord King, one of the joys of talking to the laureate Michael Spence 
is the times at Oxford that he had studying with John Hicks. John Hicks invented this odd thing called the ISLM model. You know it very well. You've taught it for years. Can we have our traditional models for Chair Yellen, for Governor Carney, for uh, Lord King, if we don't know where the interest rate is? Is, is the keel on the sailboat gone? Do we, do, can, we, can we do our economic models of tradition if we have an arbitrary and artificial interest rate? Well, excessively low interest rates, and I think that interest rates close to zero, which is where we are in real terms, is not the basis on which a market economy can hope to succeed. And what's really important is, is two things, I think. The first is a clear reaction function that people know will drive the central bank decisions on interest rates and, and money and quantitative easing. And second, a government that recognises that the central bank isn't the only game in town and that it's very important to have coherent policies on the supply side, not just tax and regulation, but also education and me measures to boost productivity and on exchange rates. And I think these, you need both of these in order to move towards a successful growing economy. I mean, I, I look at where we are, and as you mentioned, the Greenspan word quiescent, we associate that in America with Chairman Greenspan. The quiescent speaks of a low nominal GDP. Do you look at the economy and global economy challenges now within the real economy, or do you overlay this dearth of inflation and look at a more tepid nominal GDP? Which is it? I think the real problems on the, are on the real side. I think the imbalances in the world economy are growing again. And I think the nature of fixed exchange rates within the monetary union in Europe is proving a dampening effect, not just in Europe, but on the ability, say, of China to rebalance its economy. And we've got ourselves into a, into a bit of a hole from which it's quite difficult to pull for any one country on its own to pull itself out. And I think, therefore, it's the real challenges uh, that I think are the most problematic because I think central banks will be able to take care of inflationary pressures as they rise. Um, well, I was just going to, to, to ask you here, for many years we heard the Fed issuing the, the sounding the clarion here that uh, Congress, that, uh, that uh, the government needed to do more, that we needed to have this handoff between monetary policy to fiscal policy, and it seemed like after this election and uh, inauguration that the time had come, the baton could be passed, and there was a seeming willingness from the administration and uh, the legislature to, to do that. Uh, fair to say, I think that's been botched. The handoff has been botched a little bit here. How do you ease that transition? Uh, how, do you, how do you ease the transition from monetary policy to fiscal policy doing more? Well, I don't think it's a case of fiscal policy doing more. I think it's a case of structural policies, uh -huh. measures to boost productivity. We've heard from several people about the need to improve the public school system. You could say that about the United Kingdom too. Mm. These are the measures ultimately will make it possible for people um, who have suffered a great deal from the consequences of globalization, to feel that they can now participate in what will be a high productivity growth rate economy. One more question, Lord King, on this, and I want to move on to things more British in our next <laughs> section. Generous of you to be with us for this time. Please tell our national audience what Stan Fisher means for our monetary economics and for our ability to get through crisis. Well, Stan Fisher has been a superb public servant. Um, both in the United States and in Israel, where he was governor, and on the international stage, both at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. He is the sort of person 
that every central bank would want to hire if they could. And I very much hoped at one stage that he might have come to the Bank of England. So he's like a, a great football or baseball player you know, who would command the highest price in the transfer market. Uh, so it's unfortunate that he's leaving the Federal Reserve, but I hope there will be other opportunities for him to contribute oh. to the debate on, on policy in the months and years to come. I can see it now. I mean, I guess he's just retired, but uh, Vice Chairman Fisher, if you're listening, you can get Wayne Rooney money. That's, that's, that's I, think he, good. I think he probably could. He probably could. We'll continue with uh, Mervyn Lord King uh, as we can here. Uh, much to talk about. I want to go back to... Uh, a speech of 2009, which I consider a landmark speech uh, of all that we've been through through the last year. Uh, David, you're at the plaza. I'm at our world headquarters. I'll join you soon. There with uh, Mike Allen, I should mention, of Axios. It's good to see Axios uh, participating today in our event. I know they had an important note on the president's speech yesterday at the UN. Mike Allen will be with us uh, here along uh, the way. Right now with us in our studios in New York, Mervyn King, and it's easy to trot out that he is Lord King. It is easy to trot out that he was the former governor of the Bank of England. But far more importantly, uh, Mervyn King gave one of the most important speeches of our 10-year financial crisis in somewhat exit on October 20 of 2009. And in it, Lord King, you went back to 1772, and that it is about character, and it is about people. You talked about the terrible warning of the Ayer Bank crisis of 1772. And then you went on to talk about, well, the majority were good men. There may have been among so numerous a body men of different character, fishers in troubled waters, <laughs> capitalists who sought gain, not by encouragement of fair trade and honest industry, but by affording temporary fuel to rashness or avarice. Are we still there? Have we learned Anything from your important speech eight years ago? I'm not sure if anyone learned anything from the speech, but I think the experience of the financial crisis has led to a change in culture amongst at least younger people in the banking sector, and I think those who were responsible for handling and cleaning up the problems after 2008. Before the crisis, I think there was a sense of hubris in that many people working on Wall Street and in the city in London felt... You know, we're really smart. And because we're really smart, yeah. wouldn't it be fun to make money out of people who aren't as smart as we are? That was exploiting them. And I think that has now changed. And what we need to get to is a position in which people feel we're really smart and we've been given the privilege yeah. of managing money for people who are less smart than we are. Megden Desai of LSE has written about this in his uh, it was my book of the summer two summers ago, Hubris. And also uh, Sir uh, Howard Davies writing our ship at RBS has to live it day to day. Do you see British banking with lessons learned prospering or will there have to be mergers and combinations? No, I think it is prospering and I think it will prosper as a banking sector supplying the needs of the UK economy. I think one of the things that went wrong was the diversion of energy and effort at the senior management level into thinking that investment banking is all that matters. And I think the banks that have done well, Lloyd's is a very good example, it's focused entirely on becoming a retail and commercial bank in the UK. That's how in the long run they will make sustained profits. 
Lord King, a question about Brexit, if, if I could. Uh, after that referendum happened, you talked about the, uh, the divide that it illuminated between London and large parts of the, uh, the United Kingdom. And I wonder, uh, now that we're a year out, uh, has that gap narrowed? Uh, does each side understand the other better than it did before? No, I think, if anything, it may even have widened slightly. As you say, in the referendum, uh, the, the, there are nine regions of England eight voted to leave the EU and only one voted to stay, and that was London. And I think you can see in the debates that have become so politically divisive. I can't recall in my lifetime an issue that's been more divisive politically than Brexit. And I think this is really very unfortunate, and I see no coming together as yet. And I see a great mm. muddle in the centre in which the yeah. government is trying to somehow bridge these two different views, and I think it's impossible to do that. And now for the most important question of the morning with Mervyn King. Are you enjoying the United States of America? You're ensconced <laughs> professorially in Manhattan. Are you enjoying the New York University? I am enjoying it enormously, and I cannot understand why so many Americans have become pessimistic about the future in a country that does more than any other I know to inspire young people to think that they can okay. achieve the impossible. So if the city's going to move, why can't they move to New York? What do they need Frankfurt for? Well, <laughs> I don't know why people need, need, need Frankfurt. No. And um, I don't think you'll find that the city of London will actually change very much. People will talk a good game in order to get concessions from their, for their operations in yeah. Europe. But in the end, they'll come back and operate yeah. in the city of London, just as they were doing before the referendum. Lord King, thank you so much. Great You've been more than generous with your time. And again, folks, the end of alchemy, as David mentioned earlier, there are 10, 20, 40, 900 books on the financial crisis, and there are a select few that give wonderful perspective back and also look forward like the end of alchemy. Uh, really one of my, and the Financial Times giving it uh, more than accolades as well. A few years back. Futures up one, Dow Futures up two. A quiet tape. It is Fed Day, 2 p.m. this afternoon, Wall Street time. Scarlet Food leads our coverage. Michael McKee in Washington. Sir Martin Sorrell joins me now, of course, the CEO Good of Good morning. Yeah, I don't know how you do it. You're sort of like he's, a disc he's, jockey. He's marveling at my multitasking here, especially with Tom. Unbelievable. With, with Tom out of the picture. I'm You're doing underpaid, a ton. Clearly. I'm joking. Well, say that again. I think my boss is in, uh, in earshot. Great to have you with us. Let me start. Uh, let's start on the news, and we can talk about advertising here in the next, the next segment. But uh, you've been following uh, Boris being Boris, as we all have uh, here. Being very Boris. Yeah. yeah. What, do you, the, what do you make of the, uh, the Daily Telegraph piece that he wrote, indeed, uh, sort of the, the fallout from that uh, as bit, we did this meeting this afternoon? A bit for the leadership. So you see the political motivations therein. Well, it seems to be. I mean, he did it one time round, you know, on the, the leadership contest. Failed failed on that. Got the foreign secretary job and decided to have to go. I, I, I mean, whilst I have some sympathy for him, I, I rather like him, actually. And I think he has, uh, I think he thinks he has some Churchillian characteristics. He wrote a biography of him, so I think he was fascinated <laughs> he knows by the man. But I think he sees himself as sort of some Churchillian figure. Uh, I think he's actually more like than people people understand in the in the country, and therefore is a is a contender. But I would just critique his timing. I think, you know, with the prime minister due to give a very important speak in, speech in Florence on Friday, yeah. on Friday uh, about uh, our negotiating stance on Brexit. Uh, I think timing is a little bit unfortunate. You know, one construction of it is that you know he pulls in 
the Brexiteers, the hardliners, that Theresa May is the Scylla and steering between the Scylla and Charybdis, <laughs> one side of the well alluded, gets yes. that, yeah, one one side of the party to the other, and try to drive. I mean, one interpret. I think it's Jacob Rees-Mogg's interpretation is that you know he, he's done her a favour by trying to curry favour with the hardliners. Having said that, I thought the timing was unfortunate, uh, but they seem to have healed the breach and. The Prime Minister seems to think he's better inside the tent. Uh, I won't make the the full the full <laughs> comment on that. And inside the tent rather than outside the tent. Very good. What will you be listening for on Friday when she speaks in Florence? I'm struck by the fact that now a year plus into this process, we are still at the point at which we're waiting to hear the details of no, the negotiation strategy. I, I, it really is debilitating. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the interesting things for us is that our UK business has been very strong. And as one of the, the few parts of the world that is strong at the moment, And one of the reasons may well be that uh, clients, because of the uncertainty, are investing in variable marketing expense because they think they can tickle up the top line, which they have managed Mm. to do, by spending on that. And then next year, if they need to pull back a bit because it's variable, they can pull it back. So I I think actually there's a silver lining here. But having said that, you know, we haven't laid out our stall well with the Europeans. I was on uh, Bloomberg with Tom and Mervyn King, and Mervyn King thinks, you know... (laughs) Basically, we should get on with it. In the long term, Brexit will be a good thing, and we should plan for no agreement. There should be a plan B for no agreement. But the uncertainty is excruciating. You know, the four markets, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain, are number four, number six, number nine, and number ten for us. Brussels is an important market for us in terms of a business, generally, with the commission. And then having said that, I mean, the free movement of people... 17% of our people in the UK, we have 15,000, 16,000 people in the UK, 17% of them are EU nationals. What do they do? Their position is unclear. So the uncertainty is excruciating, and uh, we don't seem to have laid out our policy. There seems to be some distance, not just between Boris and the Prime Minister, but uh, you know, the, the organization of our civil servants, using one of the lead civil servants, uh, was moved to, to Downing Street. So... Uh, so supposedly because there were some, some issues with, uh, with our negotiator, David Davis. So we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, uh, over the coming weeks. But we're running out of time. Very quickly here, we have 30 seconds. We'll come back in just a second. Yeah. Do, we, do we have a better sense of trade policy globally at this point? You just got back from China, obviously a big focus of these Brexit conversations about uh, trade. Are we getting a... It seems to be increasingly fractured, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of uh, the problems in North Korea. I mean, the, I, I thought the president's speech yesterday... Uh, the United Nations was was a good speech, actually. Um, I thought it sort of signaled, uh, and wanted to commentate this morning. Talked about the rebranding of Trump. I think I think his opinion poll uh, in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Sorry to mention that uh, is is up a bit at forty three percent. That's up. Um, uh, I think Obama was about forty eight percent at an equivalent time. So so uh, I actually think things are sort of th- it seems to me as a foreigner. Things are starting to turn, and if the president manages to get his tax bill through, yeah, another talk of health care, but he, uh, we have infrastructure spending and we have regulation being reduced. Who knows what? We'll see happen. what happens. Sir Martin Sorrell here with us, CEO of WPP at the Bloomberg Global Forum here in New York. We'll have much more from here, much more with him in just a moment. This is Bloomberg. David Gura, Tom Keen here at the Bloomberg Global Business Forum with Sir Martin Sorrell of WPP. We we're having a conversation about Brexit and trade. Let's talk a bit about uh, advertising. There's been a slump. Thank no God we got to the real. Thank God we got to the heart. The, the heart of life. The heart of the matter. There. Yeah. Uh, there's been this slow, this the slowdown, this downturn, whatever you want to call it. Uh, what's going to bring us out of it? Are, are you seeing a green shoots, signs that things uh, will change? Uh, 
Well, a little bit. I mean, pe- in the in the sense that clients are talking about spending uh, more and what what they what they lost on the swings in the first half, they'll gain on the roundabouts in the second half. Well, yet to see that can't come through. August was a little bit better than July, but that wasn't saying much because July was tough. So uh, some signs of that, but I think the fundamental problem. I don't think it's about Google or Facebook eating our lunch. I think they're uh, much more friendly. Uh, certainly not as much of a friend of me as they used to be. What's the relationship like between you and them? Well, uh, Google is our biggest source of uh, or, or deployment of media funds. Out of our $75 billion media book, about just under $6 billion goes to Google. Uh, about two, two and a quarter billion goes to Facebook. So uh, they're either one and three or one and two in terms of our media destinations for our clients. So it's very strong. I don't think so much about the consultants eating our lunch. I think the key issue is cheap money. Uh, we were talking about this with Mervyn, mm. with Tom earlier, and I think uh, Mervyn agreed in the sense that it leads to misallocation of funds. You have pools of capital uh, available for ZBB or activist investors, and that may not necessarily be securing the right deployment of funds. There's very much of a focus uh, on uh, cutting costs in a low-growth low inflation environment where there's little pricing power. I think that continues. So the answer to your question is, I think the only thing that stops it is yeah. a rise in interest rates, but all these things are relative and interest rates are not mm-hmm. going to go back to where they were uh, a few years ago. And when you had those wonderful charts about sterling trade-weighted really sterling. really did that interest. for you. I didn't do that for Governor <laughs> King. No, 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 absolutely. So that wonderful chart uh, which showed what happened pre-2009 when sterling, in his view, was too strong. Uh, we'll see. We're paying the price for that now. But anyway, it, it, the answer to your question, David, is probably going to get a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, but the, 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 the essence of this is whether cheap money is securing the inequality issue. I mean, what's happened since Lehman is that cheap money has driven asset allocations, which have increased inequality rather than reduce it. Hence our populist popular swing there on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Where we are now politically. You just got back from China. You're a new uh, freshly minted columnist for the Shanghai <laughs> Daily I saw this morning writing a, a piece for them about uh, your trip there and your sense of where things are going in, in China. From an advertising yeah, watch perspective, out. watch yeah, out. Watch out, West. Tell well, us I mean, more about that. Yeah, what We've said well, well, What did Chinese, you see this trip in particular? Uh, well, I, I saw again that the, the Chinese filling the vacuum that the Obama administration and Trump administration really have left, I think, uh, in, in Asia, you've seen Belton Road, you see the Brick Bank, you see the Asia Development Bank. All these uh, institutions and initiatives, China is filling, filling the vacuum. Uh, we saw that many oh. years ago in Africa and yep. in Latin America. It's being exacerbated by what we're seeing. Uh, so I think China, and another couple of uh, other observations. Yeah. We always think in the West that China steals technology. Wrong. If they did steal it before, they're not stealing it now. You look at Huawei, you look at Tencent, you look at Alibaba. We have Jack Ma here today. These are all good examples. OnePlus, yeah. Xiaomi, all examples. Lenovo, Ohio, of companies that are building technology in an effective way. The local companies are the big competition for the Western multinationals, not their fellow right. Western multinationals. <clears throat> and the final point is Chinese consumers, Chinese consumers, Tom, are willing to pay more for brands they appreciate that says, okay. says, say things about them uh, and have tangible or emotional okay. We're going to have Justin, Mr. Martin do sports and uh, traffic about this. <laughs> Justin from Washington emailed in, and he said, would you ask Sir Martin about Tim Cook, the Apple X, I kid about it, the Apple 10, 
and all this new technology and how we're going to consume WPP ad product on new fancy gorgeous 4K cell phones. Are they going to be, I mean, so many sites, and I don't want to badmouth anybody, yeah. are cluttered up with ads. Yeah. How is your world going to dovetail well, they're, they're with by, the iPhone 10? Thereby hangs the, the challenge we, we, in this increasingly cluttered, complex environment where people need us more Clients need us more than they ever did before because it is complicated. It is very di well. Clutter means optimization is more difficult. It means advice is more important, and that's so where I think I think the opportunities and creativity in all its form is more We're going to have Mike Allen of Axios on, and they're putting the ads gorgeously within their feed, sort of transparent. They say it's an this ad. This is I an get unadulterated okay. ad for Axios. But, but I mean, it's I, outrageous. It's it outrageous, but I want you to tell me how you can become more seamless in messaging important products. But that's what we've been everybody. doing. Tom, I know you, you've been you doing it, noticed. but uh -oh. the other people uh -oh. have not been doing it. No, no. no My we, point we, is you're leading the way. When does everybody else catch up with you no. with the transparency and grace to this ancient business? You've got to make money to pay the medical plan of the journalist. No, it, it is. I mean, <laughs> it is evolving. I mean, certainly not in the physical journalist world. We've seen degradation, extreme degradation in the last couple of years in particular, but in the digital journalistic world it is developing, and content and content development becoming increasingly important. I mean, you, you, there's no, it's sort of like Claridge's. Isn't this room, David Gurr, sort of like Claridge's It's beautiful. London? They've taken he's all wandering the off again. Out. That's right, he's wandering. So he punctuates his more. interviews. There's a question about the royal this family. Like, now he's talking about the Plaza Tea Room. This look, looks like the Sir Martin's Pateter in New York, right? Oh, yes. There you go. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you lastly, how you, how you as a business respond to all of what we've been talking about. Uh, is, is WPP with, going to be with flattened in some say, consolidated in some way? How's the management well, structure we're, we're, we're simplifying our structure. I mean, we talk about horizontality, which is getting our people to work together, benefit of clients. Our clients are interested in the best people. They don't care where they come right. from. The second thing is fast growth markets. They continue. They're a third of our business. That's where the next billion consumers are going to come from, not from the U.S. or Western Europe, whether the U.K. is in Western Europe or not. Uh -huh. And then thirdly, <laughs> digital. We just touched on that. It's 40% of our business worldwide. Average is about 30%. It's going to, be, it's going to permeate everything mm -hmm. we do. And last but not least, and really importantly, data and the control of data is the critical area. These voice-activated devices, you know, we have five from the Fearsome Five. We have Ding Dong at JD.com, which is their wonderfully named. Tom's eating activator. one as well. And, <laughs> and Genie, Genie from Alibaba launched in the last month. Oh, this is where the fight is going to be between, the, between the distributors, Amazon uh, and Alibaba, and yeah. the branded goods manufacturers. Big fight no. coming. Control okay. of data critical. Sir Martin Sewell, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. WPG. Thank you, David. Thank you, David's Martin. a star, Tom. Oh, oh, I, know. Oh. I know. Come back any time. He does everything. Gurr is killing it. I'm mistaken for David Guerra. Oh, I love that. There you <laughs> go. Future's up one. Goggles everybody. <laughs> it's Fed Day. Stay with us. He's a man of numerous accomplishments. One is surviving Duke University. I think far more, David Guerra, you should bring in. Uh, Mr. Rubenstein. You give that to the guy um, from Chapel Hill to bring, to yeah, bring yeah, the, the guy Duke from UNC ought to bring in the guy from Duke, <laughs> but he has been more than generous 
and particularly with his understanding of the place of American uh, history, his contributions to our Library of Congress, uh, Leave One Speechless, and of course anyone who's in the know of our history knows that can only be David Rubenstein. Your public service to President Carter years ago, uh, people within the business community know you. I want to get an update on Rubenstein, the, the historian. What are you doing? You, you, you've been able to husband wealth. What are you doing now in terms of the kind of acquisition as you did with that important, I think, Psalm book out of New England from years ago? What's the new thing? Well, what I've tried to do is a couple of things. Buy historic documents or like the first book, the Bay Psalms book, or the first map of the United States, and put them on display where people can see them so that they might be inspired to learn more about American history. Uh, it's very sad how little Americans know about our history. Recently, in fact, this last week, uh, the Annenberg School out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania came out with a survey that showed that 75% of Americans cannot name Three, the three branches of government. We have three branches of government. Yeah. 75% of Americans cannot name that. In fact, one-third of Americans cannot name even one branch of government. So my theory is, let's have more things that bring people to museums, memorials, and let them learn more about American history by seeing these documents firsthand, then maybe go back and studying them more. To keep the politics out of it, to be polite, we're witnessing this today with the launch of the American Almanac, Michael Barone's wonderful book, 2,000 pages on the people of our politics. To be polite, there's been a dumbing down. How do we get the rigor back in our civics for children? Right now, uh, very few public high schools and junior high schools require civics anymore. Thank you. Yes. And when I went to uh, high school and junior high school, you had to take something related to a civics course. Today, even more amazingly, you can major in history at any American college and not have to take a course in American history as part of that. Are you going to solve that at Duke? Forget about UNC. <laughs> well, uh, I have stepped down from my chairmanship of Duke <clears throat> University Board. I was chair for four years and on the board for well. 12, so I don't know that I have the influence any longer. But the truth is uh, all American colleges should have graduates learn something about the history of America, I think. And, and this to explain, folks, with Bloomberg Surveillance, as I jest, is the joy of being surrounded by David Gura and David Rubenstein with the Gura family's uh, mastering of pre-Civil War American history. It must, must have been something, David Gura, to grow up in the crucible of 1830s America. Very true. And I, seven or eight miles away from Duke University, despite that allegiance to UNC, I did spend some time in the, uh, the Duke Library, uh, which uh, in part bears your name, David Rubenstein. Let me ask you, we, we We've talked with Arthur Levitt about the role of history of the liberal arts in business. He says not enough people going into business today have that background. Uh, what's the well, case that you would make to them that it's worth doing that, that doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're an economics major, right. there are other things that can be beneficial in business? Take the CEOs of most of the major Wall Street firms. They were not STEM majors. They were social science or liberal arts majors. And so clearly there is something you get from being a liberal arts major or social science major that gives you ability to process information, to think, to think out of the box. So while STEM is important, I think if you, are, you want to rise up to be the top of a, a leader in Wall Street or in business, you might do better to have a degree in social sciences or history or literature. There are many that would suggest President Wilson and President Carter and, frankly, President Clinton probably had the most raw intelligence of anybody to enter the White House. I don't think we were, to, out of any of them and other esteemed Republicans as well, the phrase, destroy North Korea. Your comments on the rhetoric we're seeing, the physicality of our international rhetoric out of America, please. Well, there's no doubt that uh, rhetoric sometimes gets ahead of the reality. 
and without commenting on any specific speech, there's no doubt that I think it would be best to have more bipartisanship mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. I've tried to do something about that in my modest way. I have started a program to um, bring historians to the Library of Congress where I interview them in front of members of Congress. Members of Congress only are allowed to come, and we've had Doris Kearns Goodwin and David McCullough and usual people like that. And members of Congress really want to learn about American history, and I ask them to kind of sit with people from the opposite party in the opposite house, and so they actually spend time with them. How odd. How strange. Yes, and they, they, they tell me that uh, this is something they don't usually do, and they actually like it very much because there's no press there to watch them, and they don't have to be uh, concerned that somebody will say, well, why are you sitting down next to a Democrat if you're a Republican and vice versa? And so this has gone on for about three plus years and it's worked out pretty Amazing. well what was the, the the book or the piece of ephemera that got you interested in in rare books uh, in general what, what what is it about picking up say the the, the basin book that tom mentioned from the 17th century that excites you or does something different than reading it online or, or you know seeing it from a distance why do we have museums uh, why do we have libraries? You can get anything online now, and you, can, you don't have to go visit a museum. The reason we have museums, I think we should, and have libraries, is when you go and see something in, in person, mm. you get more inspired to learn more about it. So if you go mm. to the museum, a Smithsonian museum, you see an artifact, you might go back and read more about it, and that's the important thing. Well, There's clearly a difference between seeing something online and seeing it in person. And I would mention, David, Mr. Rubenstein's assistance in the rejuvenation of Ford's Theater is maybe a museum that would be an example. Let's get over to finance. I talk of financial engineering and the shift we're beginning to see from accretive deals to dilutive deals. There seems to be a little bit of a change in the wind of deal making in America. If the Fed becomes more restrictive, rates come up even a little bit. Do we see a shift in the mergers and acquisitions terrain? Well, mergers and acquisitions are going to be with us all the time. This is what some people do, and some people think it's necessary to do it. And, and if you're in the private equity world, this is what we do. We buy companies, and we ultimately sell them after we fix them up. I think right now prices have been high, but you don't see people walking away from deals necessarily. They may be paying a little bit lower price than, than sometimes they might have paid in the past. But right now, I think people want to do deals. Within that, and I guess the latest news, not for you, you may be involved in these transactions of T-Mobile and Sprint. We have the phrase monopoly, duopoly, maybe a triopoly. What's a fouropoly? Do you have a phrase for a fouropoly? I mean, there's this, there's this interesting thing of the business world and the world of utilities. Is myself, the, the 14 cell phone bills I pay, David Rubenstein, are they a utility? Well, uh, I pay them as well. And, um, <laughs> you do. On the Bloomberg uh, uh, show that I have, I did ask uh, Brian Roberts uh, if, he, if I could make the bills, if he could make the bills simpler so I could actually understand the bills that I'm paying, and he said he was working on that, so that would be a good thing. Um, when you have, right now in the, in the cellular telephone business, you have four companies in the United States, yeah. and I think what Masasan is saying he might want to do is, is get the two smaller ones to become well, the big three to be more competitive with AT&T and Verizon. David Rubenstein, thank you so much, and thank you for your contribu contri contribu uh, contributions. Contribution. Contribution. There it is. <laughs> I went to UNC. What can I say? Oh. Contribution uh, to uh, a Bloomberg television. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>